Today we're going to be in 12, 37 to 50, John 12, 37 to 50. Um, I am going to read to you from the ESV, but whatever translation you have will be fine. Um, those of you watching online, just joining us, welcome. We're glad that you're here. And I want to invite you to open up a Bible or scroll on a phone to John chapter 12, uh, verses 37 to 50. If you're not familiar with your Bible, the big numbers are the chapters and the small numbers are the verses. And so we'll be in John, again, 12, 37 to 50. Now, I want to warn you as we start today that uh, this is actually some of the most, these are some of the saddest parts of the Gospel of John. Uh, and and uh, that's going to be our focus today. So welcome to church. Glad you're here. It's going to be a little sad today. That's just how the text goes. I was tempted to actually skip over this chunk uh, and just go straight to John chapter 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, because we know that story is familiar. Um, but that just didn't feel quite right to do, and so we're going to just do our best to walk through this today, um, because I want, at the end of this series, for you to know that you've basically been through the entire gospel of John. Uh, and so in the text today, we actually also have a connection back to uh, the Christmas story. So it's almost July, so almost Christmas in July kind of thing going on, right? We're just about as far away from Christmas as we can get in the year. And, and so we have this connection with the Christmas story and actually the childhood of Jesus in this text. When Jesus, you'll remember if you know the story, uh, was, was just six weeks old or just under six weeks old, his parents took him to the temple to dedicate him to God as their firstborn. You remember that whole story? If you have any church background at all or you know the Christmas story, and there was a godly old man there named Simeon. Okay, a godly old man named Simeon, and he had been told by the Lord that he would see the Messiah before he died. And he knew his, the clock was ticking, right? He knew the time was getting closer and closer, and he saw the baby Jesus. And the last thing that Simeon says to Mary in Luke's account when he blessed Jesus was this, behold this and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So in other words, what's happening there in that text in Luke is that Simeon is prophesying that the life of Jesus is not going to be just all happy, right? The truth in many hearts will be revealed. There's a sense in which, to use this word, Jesus' life is apocalyptic. It reveals what's really going on in someone's heart. Many will rise, many will fall, teaching of Jesus. Jesus reveals what's in the hearts of men. And this is going to be important as we think about uh, blindness and hardness of heart in just a little bit. And we're going to see um, in today's text this reality, and it's the same reality that's present uh, with us today. This is still what Jesus does in this world, right? He confronts the reality of what actually is. But here's something that you need to hang on to in general as you read the Bible and as you live life under God's rule and reign, but particularly as you walk through this text today, Jesus and John, they don't tell us sad things just to make us sad. That's not their goal. 
That's not the point of John's gospel. You, you should know by now what the point of John's gospel is. I've said it to you a hundred times. Um, they tell us, Jesus and John, tell us sad things so that we'll be left with the contrasting images to those sad things. So darkness is spoken of for the sake of light. Ugliness is spoken of for the sake of beauty. Pain is spoken of for the sake of comfort. Sorrow is spoken for the sake of joy. And conflict is... We know that those sad things, those dark things, those hard things are in the end in order for us to have joy in Jesus that's full, in order for us to have eternal life. So that's the setup for today. Um, by the power of your spirit as we gather here in this place in a unique way. Uh, and we, we ask that you would illuminate uh, our, our eyes, this text, to see what you want us to see in today. It's a, a tricky text, a difficult text to make sense of in the Gospel of John, and yet we know that you've given it to us so that we might believe. And so I pray that that would be the end goal of today, that all of us would walk out of here either believing more in you or believing in you for the first time, whether we're here in person or we're watching this online or through technology, we're watching this a year from now somehow, that we would walk out of this moment believing in you uh, as the Son of God, the Christ who came to die for us in our place, that we might have life and in believing that we would have that life with you forever and ever. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, this is John. I'm actually going to read verses 36 to 50, uh, just because that kind of completes the whole picture here. But John 12, verses 36 to 50. Verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. Though he had done so many, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Quote, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, quote, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Before we go on, I'm going to get rid of these keys, because I know I'm going to want to play with them in my pocket. And that will be annoying for you, so I'm, I'm here to serve you. All right, the saddest part of this text is actually in verses 37 to 43. Okay, and, and the reason it's sad is because it's about the unbelief of Israel and the sentence of God's blinding on them. And we're going to get to that in just a little bit, but I want to first start by looking at the last part of the text in verses 44 through 50. So it might help you to realize, 
Uh, This is one of the unique things about the Gospel of John. So you know there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptics, meaning they are a synopsis of the chronology of the life of Jesus. But John is not like that. You may have read the Gospel of John and thought, what is going on? Like, the timeline seems all crazy. And that's because John is not trying to give you that kind of timeline, historical record of the life of Jesus. He is trying to show you the signs of Jesus so that you might believe in him and in believing you might have eternal life. So it might help you to realize that at the end of chapter 12, here in verse 50, the public ministry of Jesus in the gospel of John is over. Starting with chapter 13, all the way through the end of the book, he's only speaking to his disciples. And in the last night of his life, and then he comes to his death and his resurrection. And so think of these final verses of chapter 12 in the gospel of John as the last thing that Jesus says as part of his three-year public ministry. There's something weird about the way John sets up these closing verses, right? Remember that back in John 12, 36, from last week and the beginning of this week, Jesus is talking to the crowds about being the light. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And then in the verse middle of verse 36, what does it say? When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from him. Now we have no indication from John where Jesus went, how long he was gone. We don't get any of that. So John, who's writing this, does all the talking, you'll notice, between verse 36 and verse 44. And Jesus is hidden. This is when Jesus is gone. No description of any setting, none of that. And then out of nowhere, kind of, John says in verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said... So when did he say this? Where did he say this? To whom did he say this? John doesn't say, okay? Now, why does John set it up that way? Well, it seems uh, that that a good answer is that it's simply because these are a summary, uh, these are summary words of the last three years of the ministry of Jesus. These words are not meant to be uh, bound to a specific time or place or an audience. They're meant to sort of read as a climactic summary statement of the ministry of Jesus. So when, when Jesus says, or when, when John says that Jesus cried out and said, what he's about to say is sort of a climactic um, summary statement. These are the last things that Jesus says before he turns from his public ministry to the privacy of the Last Supper and his time with the disciples. You notice in your heading, if you look at the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus is about to wash the disciples' feet. And so this is the, the end of Jesus' public ministry. So verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Now, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry to this point of Jesus' public ministry, Jesus has been claiming that he and the Father are one, okay? Again, if somebody ever tells you Jesus doesn't ever claim to be God, just take them to the Gospel of John. He says it all over the place. John 10.30 is an example. John 14.9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, okay? This is a central idea to the Gospel of John and to Christianity, Like if you don't believe, we've talked about this, if you don't believe that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father are one but three, you're outside the bounds of historic Orthodox Christianity. Um, Ask me how that works, I'm not sure. I've got a bunch of books in my bookshelf trying to explain it and people who got it wrong and are heretics, but that's the reality of what we believe. Jesus and God the Father are one. 
And, and so um, G, to, to have Jesus as Savior means you have God as your Father. And to not have Jesus as Savior means you cannot have God as your Father. First John 2 says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Same author, different letter. So what you do with Jesus is the clearest test of what you do with God. Because Jesus is God. He's one with God the Father. Verse 46, let's keep going. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. This is his last public mention of himself as the light of the world. But, but this, this idea of Jesus as the light has been there from the very beginning. No pun intended in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, right? That whole text, John chapter 1, verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's speaking of Jesus. So the very beginning of mention of Jesus in John's gospel, light and darkness, the very last public words of Jesus in verse 46, Jesus says, I've come into the world as light. John is doing something there. He wants you to see this picture. Everyone who receives Jesus moves from the darkness of sin, ignorance, death, into the light of truth, peace, fellowship, with God. That, that's what John's trying to get you to see. And now in, in the last three verses, the emphasis is going to fall on the words of Jesus or the commandment of Jesus, but not only that, also the outcome of the salvation and eternal life for those who hear these words and embrace these words as a way to gain the light, right? As a way to, if you will, pull back the shades of darkness in your soul and let the light shine in, okay? This is uh, verses 47 to 50. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not, listen to this sentence. You need to hear this as a Christian living in the world we live in. Jesus did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. I know that the accusation is made the other way, but this is Jesus' own words, he did not come to judge the world, but to save the world, which means we certainly are not here to judge the world either, right? We're little Christs. He goes on, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. He doesn't say there's no judgment. He just said he's not here to judge the world. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has, given, has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So we know Jesus, we know the Father, and we are saved. We are filled with the Spirit, and we have eternal life through the words of Jesus because they are the very words of God, and they have unique divine power to bring Jesus himself into the human soul. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, John 6, 63, Jesus says, or the disciples say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, John 6, 68. And then right here in our text, verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge, the word I have spoken to you, okay? This is a good illustration that I heard another pastor give for this, uh, and, and this will make sense in a little bit. Um, Jesus, it, it's like if I came to you and I knew you had drunk poison, and you didn't believe that you'd drunk poison. And I said to you, you've drunk poison. Here's the antidote. And you say, I don't want the antidote. I am not the one who's going to cause the poison to take effect in your life. I am just speaking to you the reality of what's going on. And in the same way, Jesus didn't come to judge the world. He came 
to bring his word, which brings its own judgment on you. We have all been born with the poison of sin. Jesus is simply saying, if you do nothing, this leads to death. And some of us say, give me the antidote, Jesus. And some of us say, I don't believe you. And then the effect takes effect. And so with this word, the public ministry of Jesus is over. And for the last 2,000 or so years, we've had exactly what we need to get what Jesus is offering. We have his words, which are the words of God. This is how we know him. This is how you receive him. This is how we are in fellowship with him. So I pray that you will hear his words and receive them, right? Verses 37 to 43, this is the sad part, right? Because this is where darkness is talked about as a way to point us to light. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he's writing, feels the need not only to sum up the, the positive things that Jesus has done, as he says he, uh, many more things Jesus did, but I've written these ones down, right? Not only to sum those up, but also to give a summary of the failure of the people of Israel to receive Jesus as Messiah, okay? Remember the words of John, John 1, 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Who is his own? Israel. The ministry of Jesus begins with that announcement that he came to his own and they rejected him. They didn't receive him. And now the public ministry of Jesus is ending with an explanation in John 12, 27 to 43. So here's what John's doing. In chapter 13, everything's gonna start to focus on the final and last hours of Jesus' life and with his disciples, his death, his resurrection. And what we need to see now is that this sort of catastrophic, but at the same time somehow glorious end of, of Jesus' life, which is the greatest life that's ever been lived, Th this ending to Jesus' life is fully on the unbelief of his people. Okay, you can go to Romans 11 to see that. Jesus was crucified because he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But we need to understand, and this is where it's going to get, put your thinking hat on, okay? It's going to get complicated here. I'm just warning you. There's mystery, and it's difficult to understand. This is not an accident. This didn't just accidentally happen. The reason Jesus came into the world was to die for sinners, right? So unbelief is not just an accident of history, and it's in dying that he becomes the savior of the world. He becomes my savior. He becomes your savior by your trust. You're turning from sin and trusting in him, repenting and believing in him. And so the unbelief of Israel, the rejection of Jesus by his own people is the planned out path that God chose so that he would die in our place, make atonement for our sins and make salvation possible for the whole world. So it's not an accident. So you can see where we're going. This sad, dark account of the unbelief of Israel, John's account of it at least, is designed um, to, bring, to bring joy into the world. Like, it, it, it's a paradox. It, it doesn't make sense that the unbelief of Israel in John's text has the aim of actually bringing joy out of that. And it's God's Plan. So I'm just going to show you a few things, and then we'll close with just some summaries. So 
first, we want to see that, as we've said, God has planned this. This is not an accidental happening just in history. Like, oh, God reacted perfectly. No, this is, you read Peter's letters, especially this is God's plan, right? So, so observe that in the text. Notice that in time. I'm going to give you four examples just by reading verses 37 to 40 and pointing it out to you. It's John 12, 37 to 40. I want you to follow along with your eyes if you've got a Bible. Here we go. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that here comes the first reality point that this this unbelief of these people is planned so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And this is quoting from Isaiah 53, verse one, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So therefore... And here's the second indicator that this unbelief is part of God's plan. Therefore, they could not believe. So their unbelief is fulfillment of prophecy. Here's the third indicator. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest, and here's the fourth indicator, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. So this is clear that God somehow in his sovereign mysterious will planned for the unbelief of many in Israel so that Jesus would be crucified. And and this is where, I'm warning you, you have to deal with the mysteries of God and his sovereignty. There's just some things that we don't get to know, I guess. And we still trust that God is good. God's planning the unbelief and the blindness and the hardness of Israel does not still contradict or take away their own personal responsibility for their own guilt for this unbelief. Both are true. Jesus said in John 3.18, right after, you know, that one verse that we all know, John 3.18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. You've already drunk the poison. Whoever does not believe... Right? Whoever does not want the antidote is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So the unbelief of Israel here is guilty unbelief. Our unbelief is the unbelief that brings guilt on us, the guilt that was necessary to take Christ to the cross. So our responsibility to believe in Jesus in order to gain eternal life and God's sovereignty over everything in the universe, including our belief, are both true. And whether or not you can understand how those two things work together does not make it untrue. God is not forcing his will on anyone, but instead he is simply sovereignly giving you what you wanted to begin with, right? And if you come up and ask me, are you Calvinist or Arminian? Yes. Okay? Because it's a mystery. And to be hyper one way or the other is to be in error. Our our faith is just that, about faith. I trust in God. I trust in his sovereignty, even when I don't understand how it works. Listen, there will not be anyone in heaven who didn't want to be there or who didn't want to be with Jesus. And there will not be anyone in hell who didn't want to be there and who would not still continue to reject Jesus. Now, John gives us a glimpse, though, into how God like, does this by the way he quotes the prophet Isaiah, okay? John, John could have just left this all out and been like, and they, that's it, they, the unbelief of Israel was planned by God, and he blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, and that's it. But 
what John does is he quotes from two different places in Isaiah. And so we have to ask, why, why are these quotes here, right? Like this is good Bible reading uh, sort of practice. Why is he doing this here? In John 12, 38, John quotes from Isaiah 53, 1. And in John 12, 40, he quotes from Isaiah 6, 10. Here's why that is important. Here's why that matters. Isaiah 53, you may know it, is a description of the suffering servant, right? Many times we'll read this uh, like on Good Friday evening. Uh, and, and we know that Jesus is that suffering servant. And the two verses in Isaiah that follow the one that John quotes go like this. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. That's Isaiah 53 verses two and three. So the point is that Isaiah prophesied that this suffering servant would be rejected. Israel would not believe in him, which is why John says in 1238, who has believed? It's a rhetorical question. Why didn't they believe? Because he had no form or majesty that we should look on him. They didn't want to believe in a suffering servant Messiah. We don't want to believe in a suffering servant Messiah. Why? Because if he's a suffering servant and we are in him, then we are suffering servants in this world. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. As a man, he's just not what we think of as a Messiah. You remember the story of Israel getting their first king? What do they want? They want somebody with stature to be like the other nations. It's the same thing here. They don't want the suffering servant Messiah. And then in John 12, 40, John quotes Isaiah 6, 10, which describes what's going to happen when Isaiah preached the vision that he saw of God's glory in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. You might remember it in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord upon a throne high and lifted up. Above him stood the seraphim. One called out to the other, said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, right? We all uh, maybe have heard that text as a, uh, a Bible college student and worship ministry major that like was drilled into my head. We quoted that all the time. And so God told Isaiah that when he preached about the glory of God, the people would not believe. They would, in fact, be blinded and hardened against this glory. Why? Because they didn't want to hear that God was glorious. They didn't want to hear about the glory of, and the power and particularly the holiness of God because the holiness of God is like a hammer to the glass of your sin. It comes and confronts the reality of your sin. So how was God blinding and hardening in these two Isaiah quotes? In the one, he's sending a Messiah that they don't want. This is what God does. He does things in a way that doesn't make sense to us. He sends a Messiah with no majesty, no beauty, no desirableness, knowing that he's going to be despised and rejected. And in the other passage, God is revealing his holiness and his splendor, knowing that they don't want to deal with his holiness and that they would be hardened and driven away by it. So in other words, it looks like that the way that God planned to blind the eyes and harden the hearts of many in Israel was by sending them Jesus, who he knew that they were wired to reject. He sent them an antidote that they already decided they didn't want. This is willful unbelief. And this is at the core of what separates us from God. They do not want the lowliness of Jesus. They do not want the holiness of Jesus, but that's what they need and that's what God sends. And God knew the effect it would have. He sent Jesus anyway. Jesus willingly came anyway out of love for you and love for me and love for the world. And although many eyes are blind and many hearts 
are hard. Jesus came, was killed, and for those of us who believe, we gain his life in that belief. And so let, let's get a confirmation of this. Look at verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. As a person who sits in a seat of kind of religious leadership, that last sentence is an indictment that smashes against your pride. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. May it never be so of any of us. Now, I, I don't know if this faith of the authorities here, the Pharisees, is authentic. We, we're not, he doesn't say it's not authentic faith. And, and you can have flawed faith in being the gospel of John, John 2, John 7. And so what we will say is at best, their faith here, the, these religious, these authorities, uh, their faith is flawed. And the flaw is described in a way that, that ties us back to what we saw in Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. It's about glory and holiness and stature, right? The flaw in their faith, or as John 5.44 says, the barrier to faith is in verse 43. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus says back in John 5 verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And so the, there's a root of Israel's unbelief. And what is that root? They loved the glory of man. They do not want the glory of God because they want the glory of man. Now put that together with verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. John is saying that when Isaiah wrote of the suffering servant, the lowly, weak, despised one, and when he wrote of the holiness of the glory of God, he is describing Jesus. He's describing the lowliness and the holiness of Jesus. But what does Israel love? The same thing we love, the glory of man. And, and this man in Isaiah 53 and, and the holiness described in Isaiah 6 is not glorious, right? The suffering servant is not glorious. And so Israel didn't love the glory that comes from God. They love the glory that's in man. And so when Jesus comes as a suffering Messiah, that's not what they want. They reject him because it's not the kind of salvation they want. And that old saying popped into my head, right? Beggars can't be choosers. Like, take the salvation that comes from God, not some figment of your imagination. And when, and when Jesus makes claims to be one with the very God of Isaiah 6, that's not what they want. They don't want to deal with holiness. They want him to come and save him in the way that they want to save him without getting their hands dirty and having to hear that they're full of sin. And so they reject him and God knew that they would and God planned for that to happen and Jesus willingly came knowing that's what was going to happen. God gives them and he gives us what we need but what we don't want. And in that way, their eyes and many of our eyes have been blinded and our hearts have been hardened. So, so here's just one idea I want to leave you with today as we uh, now we're, we're closing the book on Jesus' public ministry and we're turning and we're entering into kind of the, the inner circle of conversation as John records it for us as we begin the last days of Jesus as we start chapter 13 next week. Our text from today and really the entire story of the public ministry of Jesus points to one thing, right? His entire public ministry, all the signs, all the teaching, all the proclamations, all of that ends up pointing to the cross where he's going to die for the atonement of sin. 
He's the glory of God in Isaiah 6. That's who Jesus is. He is the radiance of God. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God himself. But he's also, in that same moment, the unattractive suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And therefore, because of both of these, he is rejected by men. He is rejected and destined for the cross in God's plan. And in God's plan, the rejection of Jesus and his death on the cross does not end in just sadness. You know the story, right? It, it might be Friday, but Sunday's coming. It doesn't just end in sadness, but instead is used by God for the salvation of your soul and my soul and for the salvation of the entire cosmos, That God is doing something new in the world and bringing his kingdom into the world through the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. This is what God planned before the foundations of the earth were laid. That whoever would believe on the name of Jesus, the holy and yet suffering servant would be given life with him forever. So the question for us is, will that be us? Do we believe in him? I just want to close by reading that section from the prophet Isaiah today and reminding you who Jesus is. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. This is why all of this happened. Your peace, your healing, your forgiveness. Jesus was rejected by God so that you can have peace with God. Jesus was wounded by God so that you can be healed by God. Jesus literally was cursed, became a curse from God so that you can be forgiven by God. So believe in the name of Jesus and have peace and have healing and have forgiveness and have life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that leans against us and causes us to think and to ponder and to to come face to face with the reality that we can't understand you fully, that you're a mystery, that you're a consuming fire. You do what you want. As your word says, you sit in the heavens and you do as you please. And we come humbly before you thankful that one of the things that has pleased you is to adopt us into your family through the blood of your own son. And I pray, Father, that for those of us who are hearing these words, whether they're in the room with me now or they're watching online or watching later or hearing this later, that they would be cut to the heart and they would turn and trust in you. And we ask that you would make all of us aware of how weak and unbelieving we can be. And yet in, the, in that moment, that Holy Spirit, you would come and fill us with your sweet presence so that we would know that we are loved far more than we could imagine. And that we would run to you in those moments of unbelief, seeing that that unbelief has already been paid for. And so we pray this in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Well, as we just wrap up today, just a couple of announcements for you. Um, I think we're going to start having announcements towards the end of the service because I feel like we'll all remember them a little bit better, right, at the end. So uh, just one thing I want to let you know about, Cornhole starts tomorrow night, 630? 630. 630, if you want to come a little early and help set up, uh, I would say this too, bring your own.
If you've got like a camp chair and you want to have a seat during part of it, bring it. That way we don't have to like lug stuff in and out. Uh, it's just a lot easier that way. Bring some water. It's going to be warm. And if you're afraid of them, bring, bring a beekeeper suit because the cicadas will be out that time of day, okay? I think we're going to be playing on the asphalt, and so uh, we should be a little bit better. I would also recommend bring some bug spray for yourself. Uh, we're going to be outside for an hour, hour and a half usually. And uh, so I just want to do that. Um, and then also, if you're watching online and you want to join us, you can actually sign up for Cornhole on our website. You just go to lansdown.church. And there's a tab there where you can uh, do that. And it will let me know. And then I'll let Angie know. And we'll know who's playing. If you're playing Cornhole tomorrow and you haven't talked to Angie today about Cornhole, just see her before the service ends, before you leave here. Just touch base. Even if you're like, maybe I already talked, just touch base so that she knows who's playing and what the teams are and all that stuff. All right? Why don't you stand, and uh, I'm going to say this benediction over you and then uh, invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper if you'd like. Uh, after our kind of public service is over, we're going to come back in this room, and we're going to do our best to stand in a big circle because Trent reminded me how cool that was when we were doing that, and we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper together. This is Numbers chapter 6. Hear these words as God's words over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.